On the record. On News Talk. Yes, very good morning to everybody listening. This is On The Record. Kieran Guttehy with you until 1 o'clock. 53106, as usual, is the text number. That will cost you 30 cent. Or you can get me on Twitter, at Kieran Guttehy. We've lots coming up on the programme today. As always, though, we will kick things off with a look at the Sunday newspapers. Our panel in studio today, uh, Ian Power, Executive Director of Spun Out, Colette Brown, Irish Independent columnist, and Sheila Riley, Head of Digital with Iconic News, the regional newspaper group. You're very welcome. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Um, just to give people uh, the headlines at home, if they haven't seen the papers yet today, we'll start with Sunday Independent, property prices, extreme wealth enclaves on the way. Alan O'Keefe has this story on the front page. It's actually from uh, Connor Skeen, the former chairman of the housing agency, who has a much uh, longer piece inside the paper, which we'll probably come back to um, a little bit later. They also have a piece on the Kerry Babies on the front page of the Sindo. Interpol called in as Kerry Babies DNA trial targets illicit affairs. Uh, the Sunday Business Post, uh, Kenny accused Gallagher of pursuing a vendetta over frontline tweet. This is an email sent six years ago from Pat Kenny. Uh, to a senior RTE executive wherein he accused presidential candidate Sean Gallagher of having a vendetta against RTE. Uh, The front page of the Mail on Sunday, uh, President in fresh row on €317,000 funding. Rivals ask, was it used to top up his advisor's pay? And the Sunday Times leads with another aura story. Higgins is still being paid his college pension. President Michael D. Higgins has continued to draw down his 19000 a year pension from NUIG during his time in office, his spokesman has confirmed. There's just another story I wanted to mention. It's below the fold on the front page of the Sunday Times. It's one I'm sure people will be talking about. There'll be lots of coverage over the next few days, so let me just mention it. Ronaldo paid model €300,000 after assault in Las Vegas Hotel. Uh, it's about Cristiano Ronaldo. Uh, it's about an incident that is alleged to have happened in 2009. Uh, the, this is from uh, uh, it's Der Spiegel have the story and actually I would encourage anyone to get online there is an English language version of it uh, to read the story it is it's incredible stuff Der Spiegel have printed what they allege are uh, internal emails that Cristiano Ronaldo sent to his legal team wherein he acknowledges that the woman told him to stop said no several times and afterwards accused him of forcing himself on her uh, so uh, this is just it's a huge story like I said it's below the fold in the Sunday Times but people should get on to Der Spiegel and read it uh, the Sunday Times as well the UK edition on the front page uh, have Boris Johnson accusing Theresa May of being deranged in her Brexit plans and then in the exact same piece talking about how he's going to build a bridge a physical bridge not a <laughs> metaphorical bridge but quite literally a bridge made out of like bricks uh, between the uh, between Great Britain and Ireland um, so anyway look Theresa May herself has been on Andrew Marr this morning uh, talking about border plans and refusing to rule out the possibility that there, of course there would be a hard border in the case of a no Brexit We'll bring you that in a little while. But we might start with some of the uh, the Auris stuff, and there's lots of it in the papers today. Uh, we'll start with the Business Post and um, Peter Casey. <laughs> Ian, I'll let you share the details of this story with us, if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Peter Casey has been accused of uh, making anti-Semitic remarks uh, amongst a, no- a number of things that uh, the papers have uh, about Peter Casey today, not least his uh, driving a golf ball into the Atlantic as well uh, that he posted on Facebook <laughs> yesterday. But he has been accused uh, of making uh, ignorant comments after he said that Jewish people basically live in the White House. Um, he, Morris Cohen of the Jew- 
Jewish, Jewish uh, representative council of Ireland said his comments uh, were anti-Semitic trope that can't be tolerated in any future Irish president. Interestingly as well though he has also said that uh, he's claimed that President Michael D. Higgins once burned an American flag. Mm-hmm. He says he wants to expand the president's role as supreme commander of the armed forces by creating an elite fighting unit which he dubbed dubbed Navy Seals on steroids. So I'm just the the visual is bizarre. It's, it, it is it is nuts. It is Donald Trump stuff. Like I, it, this is one of the things that Donald Trump would say at one of his rallies. You know, he had one last night where he talked about himself and Kim being in love, falling in love with each other, and it's where he kind of rambles off script and you know his advisors go, look, they love it in the crowd, let him away with it. The media don't like it. This is this is exactly what you take from that isn't it's, it it's when politics goes beyond satire so the the line between satire and reality is becoming ever more blurred and I think Peter Casey is adding to that but in all seriousness I think the Sunday Business Post have managed to get a front page story out of an interview they did with Peter Casey four years ago that they never published <laughs> so I think that's pretty impressive on, 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 on their part but I mean I think his remarks are quite serious and they do need to be addressed and he kind of doubled down on them um, and denied that he you know they were anti-Semitic and they, that he meant any offence that he said that he was actually kind of, you know, in awe of Jewish people for wielding as much influence as they do. But I mean, that is an anti-Semitic trope. And I think that he needs to come out now and give a further explanation on that. And the rest of the media is kind of... It also confuses religion and nationality. I assume he's talking about the Israeli lobby when he talks about Jewish people living in the White House. Yeah, so his full quote was there's roughly 75 million Irish people in the world and there's 13 million Jewish people and guess who's got the more influence? We get to the White House once a year, they basically live in it. Don't get me wrong, I'm not resentful, I'm just jealous, you know, they're being so successful. I mean, <laughs> when he, it's it's kind of textbook dic- dictionary definition of an anti-Semitic trope. And that's why the representative of the Jewish Council has come out so strongly against it. He says, this is a comment of crass stupidity that we ought not to hear from one who aspires to be our future president. It is such comments that perpetuate anti-Semitic tropes and stereotypes. And he's dead right about that. I mean, David Quinn is writing in the Sunday Times today how the president can't be divisive. I mean, I, I don't know how the Jewish community in Ireland are going to feel about the possibility of a Peter Casey president after he made those comments. Well, Peter Casey would say this, you know, they're so well represented around the world. You know <laughs> well, I mean? in the White House, <laughs> yeah, maybe, the White, may, yeah. maybe not necessarily in this country. But this comes less than a week after he also claimed that the intruder in the Oris was a setup, you know, that it was an inside job, that somehow Michael D had manufactured this woman. And, you know what I mean? So mm. for someone who said on Thursday that he'd been thinking about running for president since 1982, you'd think he'd be taking this campaign a lot more seriously and that he'd have better ideas than creating elite Navy SEAL squads. Or that he'd come with ideas at all all in the first place and in, that this is this is part of the problem as far as I can see for Peter Casey's campaign is that the, it seems to have a, a dearth of ideas and vision of any form whatsoever I mean he just seems as far as I can see uh, rolls out cliches about the diaspora and uh, pretty much doesn't kind of get beyond that or to develop it beyond any uh, kind of into any sort of meaningful or depth campaign with strategy with any depth and that seems to be part of the issue as far as I can see with him I think he's providing a lot of the comedy in the early days of this campaign but I, I do think that's it's backfiring badly on him to say the least and that he's just going to become the joke candidate unless he stands up and sort of starts to stand for something if he actually can I'm yeah. not sure 
I, it does make me think that he's just a ringer for some of the other dragons, isn't it? Like as in just <laughs> by, like by com- are you by com- theories, by comparison. Are you perpetuating your own conspiracy <laughs> theories? <laughs> uh, well, I always try at least, but by at least ten past eleven, I try to get some conspiracy theory out there. At least they'll look a little uh, more credible uh, in comparison to him. Well, you know? well, at least I'm not this guy. Well, well Sean Gallagher has <laughs> already tried to put some clear blue water between himself and the, and every other candidate that's going other than uh, Michael D. Higgins mm. by opting not to take part in that first debate that was on RTE during the week so you know um, Sean Gallagher obviously didn't want to be sullied by association with the kind of also runs in the campaign and is trying to kind of intimate that you know the real battle is going to be between Michael D. Higgins and himself I mean that's the way he'd like people to perceive his stance I think personally that there's a danger that he's going to come across as arrogant and entitled because he's kind of taking this you know uh, this position that he's not going to enter the politi- or enter the uh, enter the fray in mm. debates at least unless Michael D. Higgins is there. So does the same possibility then lie in wait for Michael D that he's seen the same way? I think yeah, that, that there is a possibility but I think to a lesser extent because at least Michael D Higgins has the, has the excuse of his presidential duties and diary entries that were you know that were made and determined you know months before this campaign got off so I mean Michael D Higgins had a number of events on Wednesday and was genuinely not able to take part in, in the debate I think he had a pretty good had a pretty good excuse uh, Sean Gallagher didn't really have you know the same bona fide excuse as, as Michael D um, so uh, you know this is obviously the the way that um, Sean Gallagher wants to move mm. forward with the campaign I'm just not personally so sure that it's going to be successful I think for it was him. a very clever ploy on, on his campaign team's behalf the minute I heard that Michael D wasn't going to be able to take part in that campaign I, I knew myself there's no way Gallagher is going to allow himself to go forward for that it would have been it, it would have been crazy really to be honest if you're on his team you definitely would have said no this is not one for you um, take a step back and allow the rest of them as Colette says the, the also runs in a way to, to battle it out there for an hour um, and let them sort of scrap with each other if you like and you kind of rise above the fray and he has in doing so created this kind of a two-tier campaign which in in a way is already in people's minds anyway that there is essentially two candidates battling it out and then you've got the other four if you like and, and even I, you know I, even you hear people referring to them in that way you know kind of packing them together like that um, like it's an interesting one for Gallagher you know um, like we've heard time and time again and um, people saying that Michael D you know there weren't too many hard questions asked of him in the last campaign and everything I would say there wasn't really too many hard questions asked of Sean Gallagher to be quite honest until you know the crucial hard question which he actually utterly failed to answer and with possibly disastrous camp, uh, consequences for himself but realistically he wasn't really taken as a credible candidate for a long time during that campaign in 2011 he was you know fighting very much a ground war if you like and I'd say that's what he'll be doing this time around as well uh, you know he was getting a lot of uh, support um, on the ground in places you could feel a kind of a groundswell of mm. uh, support building for him you could feel a kind of a sense of a movement in lots of ways and yet he was been dismissed um, possibly because of his Cavan accent and I'm, I'm not donning the Breff, New Jersey now when I say that but I'm just oh, saying yeah. you know there the carpet <laughs> um, but also um, because you know he didn't have any public service background he was coming kind of with the, the celebrity tag essentially of basically he was coming from a television programme and there was a bit of sniffiness about that and because of all of that I, I really don't think um, 
he he had a very hard campaign. The focus the last time around was very much on Martin McGuinness, uh, Dana, you know, Mary Davis was kind of ripped apart early on as well. You know, when you look back on how that campaign all played out, he did escape a lot of scrutiny. And this time around, he won't. And his team will be well aware of that. Um, and I can imagine in the next couple of weeks, we don't see it today, I note, or this weekend much in the papers, much scrutiny of him. But you will see that in the coming weeks and his team will be well aware of that. So they would have, he was dead right to stay away from that camp, that uh, debate during the week. You should try and stay away from a few more of them because I'd say it won't take long for him to be just kind of, you know, once he once he's put under pressure, uh, that's when the truth will out. We'll see. Uh, Ian, he'll be buoyed by looking back at opinion polls as well. Uh, page 23 of the Sunday Independence Day, Jody Corcoran has reprinted them from the time where kind of at the start of it, he was at about 11 percent and he got up to about 40 percent by the time uh, of that fateful night on Frontline. Um, you know, uh, that that will provide encouragement to him for those who dismiss it as kind of saying look like, no one's going to beat the incumbent are they? Yeah exactly and I think it, probably as well he, he saw the 11% he got in the in the males uh, poll there a few weeks ago and thought maybe he can get back mm. up to that 40% again I think the issue this time is that his jobs uh, and entrepreneurship shtick isn't going to work it's not necessarily uh, uh, an issue that is st- to the forefront of people's minds given mm. unemployment is down closer to, to 5% at the moment um, and and basically we're a completely different Ireland and he's going to face challenges just like Sheila said in terms of explaining what he's been doing for the last seven years Fatherhood He was busy with fatherhood <laughs> uh, Yeah of course and you know what, what more qualifying you know, characteristics I'd be president you have, if it wasn't <laughs> for the kids you know um, I think in, there, there, was, there was an interesting tweet from Niall Harbison a couple of weeks ago uh, of Love in Dublin fame and Simply Zesty and he he was involved in Sean Gallagher's campaign in 2011 and alleged that loads of money had been funneled into like black ads on Facebook. Now, I think Sean Gallagher has come out and denied the existence of those ads, but I think it's going to be interesting to track maybe the social media campaigns of the various candidates and see where, where they are funneling their money. And if we are like um, the previous elections, if we are suddenly all noticing when we log into our Facebook accounts, all these appalling ads for presidential candidates. Yeah, it, it there's a, what a thought. I, I, I'm reading Fear, Bob Woodward's book at the moment. There's a great uh, little insight at the start where when Steve Bannon is brought into the Trump campaign, when they were kind of, you know, they were lagging double digits behind. And he just says to Trump, he says, ignore the national polling figures. He says, look at the data behind the figures. And it's about kind of disenfranchisement and mm. disillusionment. He says, that's where the winning of it is. And he uses this phrase. He says, America's ready for a change agent. And you could be that change agent. Uh, and I, it, it kind of, that, it just jumped back into my mind when I saw that, those opinion polls today. Uh, that Jody Corcoran reprinted because he could argue in 2011, you know, Ireland the people were looking for, for a change. Even, mm. like, look, the presidency and its ability to be a change agent, setting all that aside. But, you know, people were looking for it. Now, as you said, like, you know, yeah, I don't unemployment think, I figures down right. where they are and everything. And everybody, and every, well, sense you know, is there, yeah. yeah. And Michael D has transformed himself into an almost national treasure at, at this mm. point. And there's a funny piece actually by um, Neve uh, Horan and the Sindo about uh, Michael D's yogi. So, oh, yes. Because Michael D revealed during the week when it was put to him that he was a bit too old to be considering running for president, that he's much fitter now than he was back in 2011. He got the knee done and he's also practicing yoga very regularly. So there's an interview with his yoga instructor 
Twitter um, and he says that um, Michael D is more supple and limber than he's ever been in his life and sorry if I've turned anybody off their breakfast <laughs> with, that, <laughs> with, that, with that People shouldn't be having their breakfast by, uh, they should have it by 11 o'clock Brunch their rather, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Did you not think there was a touch of the, the Donald Trump's f- physician about the whole interview <laughs> yeah. as well, you know it's better than he ever was you know uh, the, the money though ha- has become an issue and it gets, it's on two of the front pages today as well so you can't re- completely dismiss it and uh, Kevin Doyle had a piece in the Sunday Indo about six weeks ago and it was based on internal documents that he'd seen from the Sean Gallagher campaign in adverted commas at the time wherein one of the tactics to defeat Michael D was make money and make spending an issue so I wonder you know are we kind of you know are we kind of dancing to the beat of the op- the, the, the opponent's the challengers' drums by talking about it, or are they legitimate concerns? I, I think it's a bit of both. I think the issue with Michael D. Higgins is that there's very little that you can, uh, you know, scrutinise him on. In, in terms of his performance, it's been pretty, uh, pretty exemplary uh, in the last seven years. So I think that the, the area that people are trying to hit him is is in dollars and cents and and in money. Um, and yeah, it's and on, Castro comes up a bit. It did, but I mean, I think I thought he acquitted himself really well when he launched his campaign on Wednesday. When he was talking about that, he said, "Look, if." I was doing it again I probably wouldn't write that statement between 7 and 8, eight in the morning when I've just gotten up and things like that you know so I mean he oh, did is that, how, is that how the Oris works though that well, he scribbles out a statement over breakfast and, I wouldn't and be surprised there's not, and people aren't looking over you it you know when you see him queuing up for an ATM would you think he wouldn't be somebody who would want to craft his own statement uh, at 7 o'clock yeah. in the morning I, I don't know I, I think actually in relation to the money that all of the candidates are facing questions on money and it's something that's going to I think be an issue for all of them I think the Mail on Sunday do have a good piece on their front page and they are asking very legitimate mm. questions of the Oris which the Oris haven't really responded to at all so they want to know whether this 317,000 this unvouched unaudited kind of lump sum that the Oris gets every year uh, by virtue of the statutory instrument that was signed in 1998 it was Bertie O'Hearn who was behind it uh, they, they want to know whether that's used to pay top up or to fund salaries basically for Oris staff and in particular there's an executive assistant who works with the president his name is Kevin McCarthy he was appointed in 20 11. The problem about uh, his appointment was that when it was made all of the staff allocations had been and all of the budget for staff mm. salaries had a- already been made so the Oris assured people within Leinster House that they could just rejig budgets and that they'd be able to pay his 49k salary out of existing funds. The Mail wants to know whether the 317,000 is being used um, to to pay the salary and they haven't actually responded to that at all. They've simply said that the 317,000 is used for the 20,000 guests who visit the Oris every year for state dinners, for things of that nature. But I think they are going to have to come out and make a clearer statement on that particular issue. Yeah, th- yeah. there is. Sheila, like, if you listen to Ivan Yates for long enough, he makes a good point every now and then. And he, <laughs> he, he made one the other day. Um, you know, he said, look, 317,000, and when it's explained away by way of, like, you know, more state dinners during Mary Robinson and Mary McAleese's terms were moved to the Oris. Mm. Uh, it became more uh, a venue for hosting people and for community yeah, groups and all that. Yeah, it was opened up. And, and, that's, that. and the money yeah. was needed. And Bertie O'Hearn as well is kind of backing that up in the papers today saying, look, I increased that spending to £250,000 at the time, which is why it's that weird figure um, yeah. of €317,000. But uh, 
Ivan made the point, look, it's not so much the spending, it's the lack of oversight. That, and that is crucially know, if, the problem. If all you go in and get a cup of tea or a cup of coffee, that's fine. But all those teas and coffees add up and someone's catering for it. And yeah. is, is, does that go out to tender? Who's involved in the process? Who has oversight of the process? You know, th- those are legitimate questions for that They are all legitimate questions. They absolutely are, yeah. And it doesn't even matter the amount of money. Um, Mary Regan makes a great point, makes a number of points in relation to this in the Business Post today. And that's and part of it she mentions is that, you know, the fact that it has been unaudited, you know, it, it probably down partly down to the fact that it wasn't a huge amount of money as well. But it, that still isn't good enough, you know, and, and really it isn't. I mean, it should just all be out there. And really, the RS shouldn't be dancing on the head of a pin at this point. They should just be literally throwing it out there at, at this point to get it out there early in this campaign and not allow this kind of to drag and pull down. At, uh, at Michael D. Higgins' campaign because it's the sort of thing that could easily eat away, start to chip away. Like you made the point there, you know, it's on the two of two front pages today. That's the kind of the chip, chip, chip away at uh, at him, you know, that you're beginning to see. And unless, and he's a wily campaigner, I mean, he's, you know, fought the good fight, if you like, for decades and decades. And he, he knows how to fight a political campaign. And he would know, you know, now is the time to address this. If you let this drag on and you don't, uh, you don't pull these issues out of the shadows, well, then they just begin to eat away at a campaign and people begin to lose confidence in him. You know, like, I don't agree with the hypothesis that he's unsinkable and, you know, that he can, you know, he will um, just walk into this. He w- he possibly, probably will win this campaign, but he will come through it tarnished. There's no doubt about that because that is the nature of these campaigns. They just, this particular presidential campaign rips away at people's reputations, however it manages. Well, I don't know, about, don't, I don't know about that because I think if Michael D is tetchy about kind of giving details about this payment you can kind of understand why because there was this kind of big reveal in the Public Accounts Committee last week about this 317,000 figure but I thought the most staggering thing about it was politicians didn't know about it and it's politicians who authorise the Mm. payment every Mm. year now this is a payment that's been made since 1938 and none of our politicians seem to know anything about it and it was increased to 317,000 by means of a statutory instrument in 1998 that was Bertie Ahern decided just this random figure it seemed to have been plucked from air for some reason and it went from 50,000 to 317,000 and nobody in Leinster House seemed to know anything about it and now they're all kind of kicking up a stink about it and going oh why isn't it audited well the reason it isn't audited is because it was the way that it was allocated by Leinster House to the ORIS so the other money that he gets is audited and the con- controller and Auditor General reviews accounts but for this figure it's because the way it was allocated from Leinster House so I think if Michael D is a bit kind of you know um, n- n- not too enthused about suddenly facing questions about this particularly just in just in advance or you know at the start of the campaign then probably he's you know a bit angry at the politicians for landing him in it. Yeah well at the same time he's a savvy enough operator he knows the way these things uh, play out and he knows that he needs to put a bit of distance between himself and this these headlines that are coming out um, at you know four weeks before election election day and that's the reality of it like I don't think the college pension story on the front of the independent is remotely as potentially damaging as say the Daily Mail you know if because, you know, that's 19 grand a year. It's a pension that he earned out of the time that he was um, a, a lecturer in NUIG. Yeah, he, so, he was 12 know, years a full time lecturer, exactly. 16 a part time. So you can see, you know, there's a logic to this, to, to that pension. 
but for something like this, because what you're talking about with that shit, with the 317 grand, is that there was a reallocation of funding, if you like, to uh, allegedly to pay a salary, or was that the case? You know, and just to come out now and say whether that was the case or not, it's it's not rocket science. Someone has texted in to say, typical Pro Higgins junk from Pinko Brown. Toxic poet. <laughs> I don't know, are you a toxic poet or is the president a toxic poet? Have you ever done a bit of poetry? No. no okay, Listeners right. will be glad, will be extremely <laughs> relieved to hear that. All right, I've got, never... on that note, we better take a quick break. <laughs> on the record. On News Talk. That's right, you're listening to On The Record. Kieran Cuddy with you until one o'clock. Ian Power, Colette Brown and Sheila Riley are all still with me in studio. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, Theresa May was asked on the Andrew Marr show today if there was no deal on Brexit, would there then inevitably have to be a hard border in Northern Ireland? Take a quick listen to what she said. This is about the people of Northern Ireland well, who are part sure. of the United Kingdom. It's about standing up for the whole of the United Kingdom. And we, we have been very clear I'm from moving. our point of view right. that we do not want to see a hard border between Northern Ireland and Ireland. Um, but if we leave on so-called no-deal WTO rules, that does mean an Irish border, doesn't it? We've checked with the WTO, it does mean a border in Ireland. The, uh, there are obviously there are certain WTO rules. What we are Which we are committed. No, we are committed to making sure that we can provide that guarantee to the people of Northern Ireland. Now, nobody nobody wants a good deal with the EU better than I do, yeah. and that's why I'm working hard for that good deal and ensuring that we can deliver for every part of the United Kingdom. But if we leave without a deal, you cannot guarantee that there isn't a hard border in Ireland, can you? We are working to make sure that we leave with a good deal. Yeah, that's, okay. what, that's what my focus is on. But if we leave without a deal, there will be a border in Ireland, won't there? If we leave with, as we should have them, if we uh, get to the point of no deal, we're making the preparations because we don't know what's going to come out of the negotiations. If we leave with no deal, we as a United Kingdom government are still committed to doing everything we can to ensure there is no hard border between Northern Ireland and Ireland. So you'll try, but you'll inevitably fail because on WTO rules, there has to be a border and we should level with people and explain that. As I say, as a United Kingdom government, we remain committed to, to doing everything we can to ensure no hard border between Northern Ireland and Ireland. There is only one plan on the table at the moment that provides for that frictionless trade across the border between Northern Ireland and Ireland and indeed between the United Kingdom's other borders with the European Union. And that is the plan that the UK government has put forward and which has become known as the Chequers Plan. OK, well, there's other plans. They could stay in the EU, but anyway, we're not going to go down that road. Um, were you enthused listening to that, Sheila? No, I mean, just more obfuscation from Mrs May, really, you know. Um, look, at May, uh, May's campaign or target for this weekend is just to get through the Tory party conference. If she can manage that in one piece, not cough and splutter her way through the speech. Oh God, yeah, yeah forgot about how that. How could you forget that, <laughs> yeah? I think she's quoted as saying she's bringing a sack full of cough sweets with her this time around. Um, but she can try and get through this without um, them all ripping the whole party apart in Birmingham in the coming days that'll be the, the, her biggest achievement to be honest I know there's a Tim Shipman has talked to Boris today in his uh, in the Sunday Times and the, the, the article is headlined this time he's serious and Shipman certainly believes that Boris is sort of shaping himself up as a kind of a more prime ministerial candidate if you like that and putting putting himself out there a bit a, a bit sharper than he has been before you know 
Um, but he said, when he said, when he asked him, is he trying to take over the Prime Minister's job? He says, look, my objective today is to try and persuade the Prime Minister to get back to her original way of thinking about Brexit. And Shipman says, the today is the tell, you know, because what's tomorrow going to bring for Boris? I mean, realistically, if May survives there until uh, next March, I'd say they'll shaft her pretty quickly afterwards anyway. Yeah, but her original thinking was remain. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was. Uh, indeed, and he makes the point that all along he has been an ardent uh, uh, Brexiteer. Actually, you know, yeah, there was another piece in, another that just jumped out at me. Um, I, uh, he's saying that really, as far as he's concerned, Brexit should be part of a, of a self-confident and glorious campaign to revitalise the UK economy, invest in infrastructure, invest in housing, invest in skills for young people. You know, it's all this kind of buoying it up sort of self sell, sell, sell all the time while the reality is chipping away at her in the background as the whole thing falls asunder. And the reality as well, there was a front page story in one of the English papers during the week that Brexit is costing them 500 million a week and that figure is only increasing Mm. exponentially as as time goes by. I mean, the interviews of Boris Johnson where he's trying to kind of project a more statesman-like figure by not making all the easy kind of trite jokes that he usually does, it's, it's a bit pathetic really. I mean, his big idea is to build a literal bridge, as you said at the start, to the show between Scotland and Ireland and then his plan for Brexit. You know there's a trench full of chemical weapons <laughs> on this bridge that he wants. Old like World War One and World War Two ordnance that's all been dumped there but anyway. But his, his plan for Brexit is um, is Canada plus 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 so I think he seems to think that if you just add a plus behind behind an existing uh, deal that, that exists that it makes it sound somehow yeah. better. Or well all those D's he got in school when he batted a plus to them they <laughs> sounded better you know. <laughs> I mean, he says when he's, when he's accused of being disloyal to Mrs. May in the Sunday Times today, he likens himself to an old faithful Labrador and that Mrs. May has thrown away the dream of Brexit mm-hmm. and he keeps going to fetch the dream and bring it back to her <laughs> and <laughs> begging her to take it up again and, you know, march proud, proudly forward. But, I mean, the whole thing is a mess. Mrs. May's interview there this morning is just more platitudes, more cliches. There was a children's TV... Brexit means Brexit. And there was a mm-hmm. children's TV um, explainer of what Brexit means that went via... It was Irish, yeah, yeah. news. Today, from Irish to you, four four minute little clip where Brexit is explained to children, and it actually went viral in the UK because people thought that maybe Mrs May and the rest of the Brexiteers in government could do with sitting down and watching this because actually it seems that children in Ireland are better educated about what Brexit means than actually the people who are supposed to be negotiating the deal. And when you think that this whole backstop thing, the deal, it is all supposed to be ironed out by November. I mean. Th- there isn't a hope in hell that anything like that is going is going to happen and we are inching our way towards a no-deal Brexit and I think that's where Patrick Keelty where he t- took issue with Boris Johnson calling him an ignoramus and kind of schooled him on the reality of what Brexit yeah. means for Northern Ireland in a, in a very few short pithy tweets um, yesterday. I mean, and you could kind of sense the kind of anger and frustration behind his tweets that, you know, this whole thing, which is going to have absolutely serious and possibly detrimental consequences for Northern Ireland, is just moving forward. Nobody seems to have a plan. Nobody seems to have even any kind of comprehension of what Brexit in reality will mean for people living and working in Northern Ireland and those who commute up and down between the Republic. Well, you can hear from May uh, on Mar this morning, like essentially for her, what she's using is the no deal as a threat for to, to the EU to try to get whatever it is that she wants as, as her vision, which is obviously the Chequers plan. But she's, tr- you know, she's completely trying to, to sidestep the whole Northern Ireland issue because ultimately a no deal is going to be catastrophic for that. And that's what Patrick Keelty is talking about in, in, in his criticism of, of Johnson. But it, it harks 
links back as well to the, the video of Stephen Pound, the MP who's the Shadow Secretary for Northern Ireland at last weekend's uh, Labour yes. conference, mm-hmm. uh, which went viral as well over, over the course of the week. Um, and he was really pretty much spelling out that actually a hard border in Northern Ireland is an issue of life and death for people there and that the UK government should be taking it much more seriously than they are. And she just can't seem to get away with, uh, you know, she can't get away from that, I, I, I don't think. And then I think that brings us to, to kind of Pat Rabbit's piece in the Sunday Business Post today as well, which is really good, pointing out that where's Corbyn in all of this? You know, Corbyn last week got pretty much uh, through his, his party conference pretty much unscathed on the issue uh, of Brexit, even though obviously uh, his shadow Brexit secretary brought up the the, the option of, of a second uh, vote, which I don't think Corbyn, given that he's been a long time uh, Brexiteer even before the term was popular, as mm. Robert points out today, I don't think he would be in favour of that. But certainly, like, what is his vision and how is he going to, to, to steer things uh, in a better way should there be a general election, which there is all the talk of before Christmas? The, Connor Brady has an interesting piece as well, uh, Sheila, on the yeah, Sunday Times, was, page 16, yeah. suggesting that it's not only in the case of a no deal will there be a hard border, but there will inevitably, he sees, some sort of border. That this, this will be the consequence. If there's going to be a deal, a deal is always some sort of fudge. No, no one gets everything they want and that uh, the border will be sacrificed yeah, yeah, to a degree. Ma- yeah, he does. And he, he makes the point that uh, the reality is that, you know, uh, as you say, there always has to be a fudge or there always is some sort of a compromise and that the pressure is going to become going to come on the Irish government as well to to look at what that compromise might be and where and that, and that pressure is going to come from Brussels because, as he makes the point, uh, as you an EU official has been quoted as saying you know support always comes at a price and, and I mean that's the, that's the reality of it because he says the reality is that following Brexit a lorry load of merchandise or a family driving from Newry to, to Dundalk would be no different from a vehicle entering the EU from Morocco or Russia and to date the government's position has been denied that such a thing will happen but that is the truth I mean that is just the reality like we you know we are going to be at the edge of Europe on in those border counties so what is going to happen and we keep going back to the the reality of it has to be a border and I think Stephen Pound's piece was so effective last week because it just clearly stated out what a border means you know what it looks like in a way that probably nobody had been able to articulate or to convey as simply and easily or effectively in what was it less than two minutes uh, in in the months and months that we've been going through this and I, I think that's why it kind of struck a chord with people and that's I think people for the first time sat up and went Oh, actually, yeah, I understand what that means. And I do realise now why, when they talk about the threat to the peace process, what that means. And that's why uh, Patrick Kilty's tweets are important as well Mm. in this regard, because he, you know, he makes the point that nationalists who are probably quite happy living up there and living in, in in the situation that they're living in now, you know, were a hard border to come into place, immediately that threatens the lives that everybody has up there and it threatens the peace that they have all been living under for the last 20 years. All right, well, look, like Sisyphus, we'll keep pushing that boulder up the hill <laughs> and keep watching it roll back down like he did as well. Uh, lots of coverage I want to get to before we take an ad break as well on, on, on housing uh, in the papers today. And we might start with Connor Skeen's article in the Sunday Independent. Part of it, uh, Colette, is, is featured on the front page as well. Apparently, apparently, if things keep going the way they're going, there's going to be expensive 
roads and areas to live in in the country, particularly like, in Dublin. I was a bit baffled when I, when I read this piece, and particularly given its front page position, that Conor Skeen has suddenly just, you know suddenly realised that there are going to be enclaves of extreme wealth in Ireland. Now I wonder has Conor Skeen ever heard of Dublin Four or Dublin Six, <laughs> or maybe like looked at house prices in South County Dublin because I was always under the perhaps the mistaken belief that there are already enclaves of extreme wealth in Ireland. But he seems to be saying that this isn't only going to be in Dublin that this is going to be maybe on the wild Atlantic way and he coins the term the Switzerland of the Atlantic so Clifton C4 the zero is going on the house prices along uh, along the coast as we speak so, so you're going to have very rich people who decide they want to retire in Kinmare for instance and you know property prices in Kinmare are going to shoot up now I have no idea what property prices in Kinmare are like at the moment but um, the whole notion that enclaves of extreme wealth are just going to be a new phenomenon is just something that I found uh, a bit dubious yeah I suppose <laughs> it, it, the, the wider piece is what he talks about that essentially Dublin and the greater Dublin economy becomes an international economy it's it's kind of buffered somewhat from the rise and fall that might happen in other parts of Ireland uh, as he calls them and that you'll have these kind of permanent areas uh, of wealth Yeah but I think that's already been the yeah. case for, for, for a long you know a, a long period of time I mean you have like um, Dublin has long been the kind of economic engine of Ireland and even during the recession it was the place that maybe obviously there was a recession in Dublin as well but the place that recovered you know fastest and quickest and I mean that's always been the case And Shrewsbury Road wasn't protected either during the recession like you know what I mean you saw the property price there have on some of those massive big houses so even if you're investing there and you think it's sure bet it's not like they're going to, to hold their value through any sort of property uh, bur- bubble burst But you know there is an interesting point though obviously I was struck by what he said about the Wild Atlantic Way um, the aspect of it because uh, you know you'd be thinking about um, a lot of these places on, on the west coast and kind of how neglected and everything they've been for for years and the next thing now they're, he's you know they see themselves in the centre of a boom potentially but, you know, in the UK, like a lot of this happened, say, 10 years, 20 years ago, like London became a kind of nearly unaffordable city for a lot of people a long, long time ago. And, and like that has those enclaves of, of wealth, of extreme wealth where people, you know, ordinary people could never afford to live. But also you have parts of, uh, you know, the southwest, in particular Cornwall and that, where people have kind of bought homes, expensive holiday homes and uh, or built holiday homes. And then these villages empty out yeah, for the winter period, you know, where they're only there for six months or something. On a Friday evening, if you were driving in that uh, from London, there'd be helicopters going overhead, <laughs> like a you, like a noticeable amount of helicopters as people flew from the city. Out down to Cornwall to the, down or to the out to these places. Coast. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, I, I have uh, family over there and we holiday there a good bit. And, I, you know, they tell you you'd be going through these beautiful, beautiful towns. There's nobody here in February. You know, it's it's in the summertime. Yeah, it, the people come, but essentially, there's just you know they're just like uh, ghost towns from in November, or December, and then maybe you know Christmas period or whatever. So, you know, maybe that's the type of scenario he's talking about. I don't necessarily see it playing out, uh, but as I say, I can see that the zeros going on the the price listings in, in Donegal as we speak yeah. at the notion. <laughs> uh, uh, look, that Conor Skeen's piece, anyway, for people who are interested, uh, page 16 of the Sunday Independent today, uh, Ronald Lyons has a piece alongside it actually about housing. Be- housing begins to change for the better at long last uh, in Ireland. Uh, I-, I wanted to ask you though, uh, very quickly, because uh, we're just running out of time on this, 
Carl Dieter's a piece in the Sunday Business Post in the business section, I'm not sure. But he was on News Talk as well, talking about this during the week, about hypocrisy in housing. And, and he used the line, we want housing in general, but not in particular. And it was the, you know, Aon O'Reardon and St. Anne's Park, the housing development, uh, the housing development of Blanchardstown that Leo Faradkar posted before he was Taoiseach. But he talks as well about Shane Ross, about Claire Daly, Richard Boyd Barrett, and others who you might not expect would be a poll. Well, Shane Ross is a serial objector to housing, <laughs> sorry. But the other two as, as being um, uh, kind of uh, objectors. Is it a fair point to make, Ian? I think, you know, you can you can be for more housing and object to housing plans that don't make sense for a particular area. I think you, you saw a lot of that during the week when the uh, the no confidence motion in Owen Murphy was coming up and Catherine Byrne was, uh, you know, she was objecting to, to particular development in, in her area. So, I mean, it, it just depends. I mean, I mean, you look at, for instance, the, the development that was going to be put up on Tara Street. I think it was like an 18 or 19 story building, which kind of made sense for Dublin City Centre. We need to be building up rather than building out um, and so that people don't have two hour commutes to work every morning um, and that you know fit with the, the local development plan for the yeah. area and was still objected to so you know what I mean like I think it, it's fine to object to something that you don't think is appropriate for a particular area but uh, you know f- for me I think if you are advocating for more housing you need to have a really serious reason for why you might object to a housing development in your area and I think some of the some of the reasons cited by politicians who do object are like property prices in the area will be devalued and you're going well. <laughs> is that really a good enough yeah. reason? It's shrewd politics. Other people's, really is why they do other, it, though, other, isn't you it? know, the other people's property values. Is that really a reason that you, a public representative, should be objecting to housing plans? And just just on Leo Varadkar, his objection. I think what I found most galling about that was because himself and Noel Murphy are extolling the version of or the, you know high rise development. They say that we need high rise and accept in Leo Varadkar's constituency though, because when a four story apartment block was planned, he objected on the basis that the four story four story building would be like a monstrosity in the area so you know you can't speak out of two sides of your mouth I think especially when you're in government and especially when we have the housing crisis there's a good piece in the mail on Sunday today which is listing out just how woeful the local authorities mm. delivery of social housing has been thus far this year so only 487 units have been built new houses by our 31 uh, local authorities and loads of them haven't built any houses at all. Um, Owen Murphy sent, set targets for local authorities and the numbers of social housing that he expected them to have constructed by the end of the year and none of them it looks like are going to reach their targets. Alright, look on that note, uh, Ian Cadet, Sheila staying with me back after this quick break. On the record On News Talk you are listening to the, uh, you are listening to on the record here on News Talk. Kieran Cody with you until one o'clock. Ian Power, Cadet Brown, and Sheila Riley are with me in the studio. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh, we want to talk about uh, before we wrap things up because plenty of coverage, as you'd imagine, as there was all week uh, in the papers today. Uh, there, everyone here we we established during the ad break watched it. No one could take their eyes uh, off it. Uh, it struck me as well, uh, Cadet, as I was saying, the, the photo that lots of people are sharing as well, kind of, uh, that's meant to, I suppose, be critical somewhat of Brett Kavanaugh, showing how angry he is in the middle of his testimony and all these people in the front row, most of them women, 
look with a look shocked. of disgust and yeah. shock on their face. They're actually mostly his family and his supporters. Yeah, they're, they're shock and disgust is with him, not yeah, at him. So, I mean, just if you're, if you're looking at the photo initially, you might think that they're horrified at what he's saying, but actually they're horrified on his behalf because they think that he's been maligned and his you know reputation has been destroyed. But I mean, I think one of the one of the notable things and a comment that a lot of people were picking up on was the difference in temperament and tone of Christine Blasey Ford and Brett Kavanaugh when they were giving their evidence. Um, Christine Blasey Ford, he was very measured, he was very calm, he was very polite, um, he seemed like very yeah. genuine and very credible versus Kavanaugh, who's supposed to be a job interview for the Supreme Court, like the, the most exalted mm. kind of job in the world, and comes out with a scorched earth policy, um, interrupting, being in temperament, being very partisan, saying that... Isn't allowed to be angry if you feel you've been, ro- if you are, say, in his shoes, he, wrongly accused? Yeah, so he, he could p- perhaps have displayed maybe a bit, a bit of anger, a bit of frustration, but to be consistently interrupting everybody who was asking questions to say, saying essentially it was a witch hunt, it was uh, revenge for the Clintons. I mean, this is a man who suppose is currently a federal judge and seems to be completely partisan against her and, and thinks that Democrats essentially are trying to ruin his life. Mm-hmm. And how is that going to translate into him when he's on the bench? I mean, it's just um, yeah. seems impossible that he could possibly be confirmed next week after displaying such a partisan attitude. In, in fact, you could say he not only did disqualify himself for this role, but probably the role that he's in at the minute as well, because he just seems so, as you say, so utterly partisan. It and and astonishing if a woman, if a woman had it. spoken like that, she would be described as hysterical, shrill, unhinged. If she oh, started yeah. crying and talking about her children, you know, she, she would be deemed, you know, to be completely unprofessional. Yet there's a kind of a commentary building up around Brett Kavanaugh's evidence that because he was so kind of animated Robust. and so emotional, he's passionate and, you know, he's defending his honour, you know. So the kind of gender difference there mm. in the way that people are supposed to be uh, supposed to be behave in, in public and the way that your tone is kind of policed is interesting. We're all going to be accused of being lefty lovey liberals now for, for this. But anyway, I, I, I was amazed. As you said, the Clinton thing as well, like Neil Gorsuch was was confirmed and, and, and he and went there to was the no same kind of Clinton yeah. attack, inspired attack. So it, that doesn't make and, any sense. And, and that was last year. And Gorsuch went to the same. He, he went to Georgetown Prep as well. And so he was confirmed last year. There were none of these allegations of sexual impropriety. So to say that this is some kind of democratic hit job that they kind of went out and found Christine Blasey Ford. In revenge for Merrick Garland holding it up. But, I, you know, the fact yeah. that we've had one in between. It, 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 it doesn't hold up to any scrutiny. I think, I think we forget we're living in the new normal, though, in terms of Trump's presidency. And so I think probably what Kavanaugh felt was that he had a constituency of one, which is that, you know, basically he needed to put out that, you know, kind of irrational, kind of ill-tempered performance in order to maintain Trump's support and then hope mm. that that would get him over the line on the floor vote, which possibly it will in terms of the way that, that Senator Graham and others are kind of so forcibly supporting him well, through this. It's a good point, but you'd notice as well how Trump kind of tempered his support. You know, it, it, didn't he come out and say his, his testimony was riveting? And, or, yeah, and powerful. That was the first day and then the second day, you know, that uh, he talked about Blasey Ford, you know, she seemed like a fine woman and, you know, so there was that Did kind you know of, that, matters that tempered to, to, a little to bit Trump, to my though, mind. And I understand this to a degree. What matters to him is the politics of getting of getting Kavanaugh over the line. He doesn't care who's more believable or, you know, like, put it this way, if, if, if Kavanaugh had performed even worse and Blasey Ford was even more credible, but there was 70 Republican senators, he wouldn't 
pull Kavanaugh. Like no, he would just leave prize, him where he is. The, the, the prize is a second mm. seat on the Supreme yeah. Court, and to be so at, at the moment, the Supreme Court is kind of split between like Democrats and Republicans. Yeah, and this so, would be the casting vote, and so vote, he, yeah. he would be the casting mm-hmm. vote, and you know it would have consequences for the law and for policy in the United States for decades to come. So there is a huge prize at stake here, and the Republicans, I think, deep down, I mean, it was a bit of a charade on you know they they also they wanted to hear Christine Blasey for it, but then they rushed through, wanted to rush through the vote less than twenty four hours yeah. after she had given evidence so it was almost like they were going through the motions they they wanted to give her her day out you know they wanted to be seen to give her the day out and the problem then for them was that she turned up and she was a hugely credible witness and nobody who watched her didn't believe her you know and that became their problem all of a sudden and that's why even that the way the whole process was being held changed you know the prosecutor didn't interview Kavanaugh in the afternoon it was the senators themselves to try and pull back what had been lost yeah uh, in, in on, on the ground that they had lost uh, in in her testimony because she was so powerful. Look on that note, Ian Power, executive director of Spun Out, Colette Brown, barrister and columnist with the Irish Independent, and Sheila Riley, head of digital with Iconic News. Thanks all very much for coming in. We're going to be back after this quick break.